Marion Library Service and welcome to our Library for the Lens live webinar with special guest author Catherine Argyle, thanks to Affirm Press. Since the closure of our libraries and venues, we've been working hard to still connect and engage with you through our Library for the Lens series of adult programs delivered differently. We had to reimagine how to bring you the author talks that you've grown to accept from us, so thank you for joining us today. This evening, Catherine, an Anglo-Japanese author and arts journalist living in Adelaide, who has won various writing awards and had her prize-winning short stories published in several anthologies, will share with us her beautiful and mysterious no debut novel, The Thing She Owned. Please feel free at any time during the presentation to type questions you have for Catherine into the Q&A text box on your screen, and I'll ask Catherine these at the end of her talk. Catherine has chosen local bookshops, imprints, booksellers in the city, and Matilda Bookshop in Stirling as her preferred booksellers for this event. Both stores sell Catherine's books, so please make sure you support local and contact one of these suppliers to grab your copy of The Things She Owned. Now sit back, grab a cup or glass of wine and welcome Catherine. Thank you so much, Tracy, and thank you all for taking time out of your evenings to join me. Um, I probably should say mornings as well as evenings because I have a feeling, well, I know there are a few, few of you joining me from the UK. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? I was pretty disappointed like other authors were who were releasing books during this time um, about having to cancel my book launch. But I've discovered the wonderful silver lining um, this extraordinary new level of accessibility for people who are not only overseas and interstate, but also those who might have found it difficult to uh, come along physically to these events. So I'm really thrilled to have so many of you able to be here with me this evening. Uh, so before I begin, it's important to me to acknowledge that I live and write on Ghana land, uh, here on the Lafiva Peninsula, or Mudlanga on the Adelaide coast. And I would like to pay my heartfelt respects to elders past, present, and uh, emerging. So the things she owned, this is the book, some of you may have seen and read, others it may be new to. Uh, it was released at the end of April by Affirm Press. And I just briefly want to mention how proud I am to share a publisher with fabulous writers like Pitt Williams, who talked about her book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, here last month. Um, the YouTube video is still available. And, and also with Rachel Mead, whose novel, The Application of Pressure, was released just a week ago. And she's going to be talking about that next Thursday. So make sure you register for that, because it's a gripping read. So a bit about myself and my writing history. Um, I've been wanting to write since I could hold a pencil, uh, even before I could actually write. Uh, I still have a letter that I wrote to my English grandmother when I was maybe three or four years old, and it was just a series of scrolls on the page. Um, and I, I wrote a synopsis for a novel, um, my first ever synopsis for um, Plinky and Planky the Pencils. Uh, I put that together when I was about seven. Um, I don't think um, I don't think the Booker Prize judges need to hold their breath over that one. Um, but yep, I've trodden a fairly convoluted path to becoming a, a published novelist. Um, I have had short stories published here in the UK, as Tracy said, and won the odd prize and fellowship. Um, I also write reviews and essays about the arts, particularly the visual arts, for various news outlets. Um, but after I left university in the UK a few decades ago, I found myself stumbling along a corporate career path, um, squashing down my urge to write because I feared I'd never make it as an author and that I wouldn't be able to earn a living through writing. Um, but as all of you writers listening know, it will out. And if you don't write, it will fester away inside until you do. So coming to Australia, actually from London, was what provided me with the first real opportunity to write. Uh, it was a sort of a fresh start. Um, but the need to earn a living was still quite pressing. So I worked at the Adelaide Festival Centre for a while until an illness knocked me sideways. And it was resolved by surgery, but the time I spent in the lead up to that surgery, 
and afterwards in recovery made me think quite seriously about my life choices and I decided to make a go fulfilling my dreams. So I applied at the last minute to undertake a PhD in creative writing at the University of Adelaide, um, where I had the enormous fortune to have the guidance of my supervisor, Dr. Sue Hosking, and my co-supervisor, Carol Lefebvre, um, who, by the way, I count amongst the top five writers in Australia. Uh, she's just published a wonderful book herself called Murmurations, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it. Um, so anyway, even as I came to the final months of my PhD, my old habit of taking on too much kicked in and uh, I opened a small coffee shop with my partner in central Adelaide, which took up a lot of the time I would have spent editing the manuscript to make it suitable for publication. Uh, because it was quite a different version actually that was presented for the PhD. And in the end, I was lucky enough to have the support of Arts SA um, and the fantastic hard copy program run through ACT Writers Centre in Canberra, which sadly is no longer funded. I hope it'll be revived again one day and Varuna Writers House, um, which meant I could develop the manuscript to a point where a firm press accepted it for the Varun uh, a firm press mentorship in 2018. And my contract came along a year later. And uh, I have to say that I learned an enormous amount from the editing process. Uh, I, I realized how important it is for a writer, especially a debut novelist, to take on board feedback from a publishing editor that they trust. And I feel incredibly lucky to have had uh, Ruby Ashby or as my editor. So a little bit about the novel. Um, well, probably a bit more about the novel than, than that. Um, the things she owned, um, essentially it intertwines the stories of a mother, Michiko, and her daughter, Erika. And these stories are set against a backdrop of Second World War Tokyo, contemporary London, and the southern Japanese islands of Okinawa. And, well, theirs is not a great mother-daughter relationship. It's a bit of an understatement, I think. Um, and the love that does lie buried there somewhere deep down is just poisoned by resentment and indifference. And... Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the very beginning of the novel, uh, which sets the scene for this fraught relationship. Um, Erica's still a, a little girl at this point, um, and it's set just off the coast of Hong Kong. Um, it'll be familiar to a few of you who've read the book or heard me read, uh, but for those who haven't, I hope this gives you a flavour of, of what follows. Excuse me. South China Sea, August 1979. The sun is blinding. When Erica closes her eyes, its rays pulse white beneath her lids. When she opens them, she sees her mother against blue sky, magnificent like a goddess. Michiko is wearing a cream swimsuit showing off sun-bronzed skin. Permed black curls, tumble from a red and white polka dot scarf around her head. Erica searches her mother's face. Sometimes she glimpses the eyes beneath, behind those huge Jackie O sunglasses. She stares at Michiko's crimson lips, sipping from a Martina glass. An olive skewered by a toothpick rests against its rim, which Michiko holds in place with a scarlet nail as she drinks. She empties the glass and plucks the olive from its stick with her teeth, glancing sideways at the men around her on the yacht. Julian rushes forward to refill it. All afternoon, Michiko drinks, reclining on the deck cushions, crossing and uncrossing her legs. She nods, giggles at the men. Honto? Uso? She coos. Really? Oh, you're such a liar. Erica wants to reach out and feel the icy glass the way her mother feels it. 
she wants to trace the outline of her mother's mouth with her fingertips. She moves close and the heavy smell of sandalwood and spice envelops her. Her mother loves this perfume, Yves Saint Laurent's opium. Erica touches Michiko's arm, feeling the sun's warmth in her skin, but her mother swats her hand away as if it were a fly. Michiko laughs at something Julian says. He's acting the clown, entertaining his lover. He mimes walking the plank and goggles his eyes. He teeters into a handstand, leaps up to take a bow and struts about with his chest puffed out like a rooster. Michiko's friend Marit laughs too, though not as loudly. Erica is happy Marit is here. She and her husband have come to visit them in Hong Kong. Marit is kind to Erica. She has a way of making Erica feel she can be herself and not get into trouble for it. As the sun falls towards the sea, Michiko grows quiet. Erica can see she's still smiling, though at no one in particular. Her eyes are focused somewhere beyond the horizon, her face pink and orange in the setting sun's rays. When she looks peaceful like this, she doesn't seem so frightening. It's the right moment. Erica lays her head in Michiko's lap. Julian laid his head there earlier. Ah, hot and sticky, go play. Michiko pushes her off, pointing with the hand holding the glass, slopping icy vodka on Erica's legs. The cold cuts through the heat of her skin, and the shock of it is strange, like a burn and an itch. Erica heads to the prow to curl into the cushions there. She's never been on such an enormous yacht. She peers over the edge at the waves far down below, listening to the conversation and laughter behind her. She turns to look at her mother, who's holding out her glass again. One of the men, the blonde one, leaps forward with a bottle. The man stares at her mother as he pours. He has an odd expression on his face and the glass is overflowing, the drink spilling into her mother's lap. Oh, cries Michiko, so cold. And he takes a fistful of napkins from a tray and mops her lap. She twitches at his touch. Erica watches, her mother covering the cloud of injection marks on her thighs with her palms while he wipes. Watches Julian crossing his arms, his face darkening. The man sits close to Michiko and drapes his arm over her shoulder. And he leans into her, whispering to her in a peculiar way, with his face turned to the side so his mouth is close to her ear and his ear close to her lips, as if he wants to trap every word. Everything goes quiet. Erica is so absorbed by the sight of her mother with the man that when Julian looms over her, she jumps. Hey, kid, how about a swim? She loves swimming, but feels a stab of fear when she thinks about being out here in the open ocean where her feet can't touch the bottom. Maybe everything will be okay if she wears her water wings. Heart thrilling, she brings them to her mother and holds them out. The blonde man is still curled around Michiko, murmuring. Erica waits for her mother to look at her. Come on, kid, we haven't got all day. Julian sounds angry. Erica wonders if her real dad would have been more patient. She doesn't know what he looks like because he left before she can remember, but she knows his name is George, which she thinks is a kind sounding name. Her mother said that George left because he didn't want Erica, but Erica knows that sometimes her mother lies. Mama, Michiko whips around. Mama wa dame, Michiko desho? Erica holds up the floppy pieces of orange plastic. Her mother tucks and gestures to come closer. When she darts forward, when she, dance, when she darts forward for them, Erica flinches, but Michiko just slips a wing onto each of Erica's arms, purses her lips around the valves and blows, leaving crimson smears. The blonde man stays where he is, watching. Erica suddenly wants to push him away hard, both hands against his chest, but Michiko has her arm gripped tight. Erica feels her blood pulsing as the wings grow fatter, and when her mother roughly runs a forefinger inside the inflated water wing, she catches the soft skin of Erica's inner arm. It hurts, but she makes no sound. 
She loves her mother too much at this moment, despite everything. She wants to sit close and put her arms around Michiko's neck. She wants to be where the blonde man is closer even so she might merge back into her. She basks in the imagined gaze of a mother's love, keeping very still the way you'd keep still if you saw a deer in a clearing and didn't want to scare it off. But then Michiko slaps her bottom with a laugh. Go on, have swim, she says. Julian, take care of you. Erica heads for the long ladder that stretches all the way down the side of the yacht into the waves, but Julian picks her up from behind before she can reach it, grabbing her under the arms. He whirls her around. Hey, whoo! It makes her laugh. He plays with her like this now and then. It's fun, though it makes her feel a bit sick. It's the funniest feeling when he puts her down and the room keeps tilting and spinning, even after she's stopped going around in circles. She can't work out where the floor is or even where her own body is, and she'll fall over laughing until her tummy hurts. She sees flashes of sea, the sun, blue sky, her mother, the blonde man, Marit, the other man, the deck, the sail, the sea, the sun, blue sky, her mother, the blonde man, Marit, the other man, the deck, the sail. She's flying. I'm going to chuck you in. Here we go. Whoosh. She feels Julian stumble and her heart skips. His breath smells of beer. He steadies himself. Now he swings her from side to side as he inches closer to the edge of the yacht. He's pretending he's going to throw her overboard. Erica's laughter turns to shrieks each time he swoops her up over the edge when, for a moment, she feels as if she were lifting right up and out of his arms and can see the abyss of the dark shining sea far below. Each time, her tummy falls out from inside her as he scoops her back towards the deck, making her scream and laugh. Each time, she expects him to put her down so she can go to the ladder and climb down into the sea, but he keeps on and on, swinging and swooping and hollering. She starts to feel sick. She wants him to stop. She cries out. I want to get down. He keeps going as if he can't hear her and she squirms in his grip. No, let me go. She shouts louder. I don't like it. Still, he doesn't stop. He keeps swinging her backwards, forwards, over the edge of the yacht, lurching. Oh, hey, oh, hey. Julian, put her down. Marit's voice. He doesn't stop. Julian! Marit is shouting. His arms grip Erica's ribs so tightly they hurt. She wants to cry, but knows it will embarrass her mother, so she bites her lip, her breath catching in her throat. She whimpers. She struggles once again to break free of Julian's clutches, but still he keeps on and on. Julian! On an upward swoop over the edge of the yacht, Erica wriggles free. She feels the familiar lift out of Julian's arms, but then there's only the brush of his fingers against her ribs as she plummets, her body turning through the air as she falls, her stomach leaping to her throat. The rush in her ears, the white noise of the waves beneath her is punctured only by Marit's long scream as she falls head first for what seems forever. So it's... Um, there is a sort of a parallel scene that um, happens much later on in the novel. I cannot talk about it because it's a complete plot spoiler. Um, but this moment in Erica's childhood uh, reverberates through her life and um, contributes to a fairly cathartic and catalytic scene towards the end of the, the book. Um, so... There are quite a few themes woven throughout the book, um, but really at the core of the novel lies Erica's struggle to come to terms with the death of her mother. And that's not a plot spoiler, by the way. Uh, and for 12 years, she pushes aside her grief, keeping herself busy as a workaholic chef in a fine dining restaurant in, in London. Um, and it's only when her cousin Kay comes to visit her from Tokyo that she's forced to confront the painful feelings and memories she, she keeps hidden away alongside some of the objects Michiko once owned um, that Erica inherited, along with fragments of her mother's cremated remains. 
and she keeps it all in an antique replica Korean cabinet uh, that's supposed to be serving as uh, Erica's ancestral altar. Um, and these objects are the things of the title, uh, the things that hold the key to everything really, including actually my ability to write this novel. Um, those of you who've read the novel or started reading it will see that at the start of each of Erica's chapters, um, there's a short prose piece about each of those objects, um, which then pop up later in the narrative. And it's those things, those objects, that act as catalysts for the grieving process that Erica's put off for so long. Um, so that kind of connects back to why I wrote this novel. Um, apart from the fact that I've always been fascinated by, by objects and the meaning that are, is imbued in those objects by people who own them, um, I struggled really to deal with all the things that my own mother left behind. And my parents had been separated for some time, so everything she had in her apartment uh, ended up uh, with me. Um, uh, she died in 1995. And I just at this point really want to emphasize that although my mother was Japanese and I'm half Japanese, uh, Michiko of the novel is, who becomes quite monstrous, really is, is nothing like uh, the way my mother was. So I just need to drop that in here. Um, you'll see that in the dedication I've written for the book. Um, but when my mother died, it did turn my life upside down because apart from the, the loss of my mother, which was pretty terrible to me because uh, I was very close to her, um, I felt that I also lost, uh, lost my connection to my roots. Um, and I was born and raised in Tokyo, uh, but since I was to be educated in Britain and since dual citizenship isn't permitted by the Japanese government, I, I sort of became kind of exiled from my native country. Um, and so the loss of my mother symbolized the loss of my Japanese-ness in a way. Um, for years, um, I skirted around all of this in my writing until I was asked to write an assignment for a creative writing course in London way back in 2002. And the teacher asked us to write a very short piece about an object we owned that was particularly significant to us. So I chose this. I hope you can see it clearly with my little camera. So it's, um, it's called a jizo, which is uh, basically it's a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva, for those who don't know, is a, a representation of an enlightened being. It's a Buddhist uh, figure. And it's carved from quartz crystal. And it used to belong to my, my mother. And um, although there isn't a separate prose section describing it in the things she owned, it does make an appearance in one of the chapters. So I'm going to read a piece that's not from the novel, but it's actually the assignment that I wrote for the creative writing class um, that I've read at various events in the past, but it's actually never been published, but it'll give you an idea of the significance of the object and what sort of created this obsession right, with the meaning of objects, especially those left behind by, by people who have died. So this is the Crystal Bodhisattva. It was a gift for my mother from her sister at their final parting. My mother leaving Japan where she began to return to London where she ended. It's a quartz crystal bodhisattva lightly etched with abbreviated features. Roughly the same size and shape as my thumb, it has a small bubble of a head with tiny ears either side and curved dashes as if left by a thumbnail, translating into a gentle mouth and closed smiling eyes below yielding brows. Such light marks make a sweet childlike expression. The body is a softened cylinder with the five lines etched for a robe, the arms left to the imagination. Cold, clear and hard like glass or ice, it carries no trace or place of place or mark of time. It takes on the colour of whatever's near and warms to the blood when held for long enough in the palm of the hand into which it snugly fits. There was once a time when it was perpetually warm, carefully concealed in the sweating palm of my hand. Only it and I knew it was there. 
hidden over three weeks. When I no longer cared what Zen voodoo it exposed to brisk British doctors, I took it from my hand and placed it on her unconscious breast where, taking on the blue of the woolen blanket it lay upon, it rolled gently with the rise and fall of her slowing breath, growing cold in sympathy with her, its face mirroring hers. I thought it might carry the warmth of my hand for her as she traveled that November morning to a cold place, away from that quiet room of sighing machinery. I felt her leave, watched over by her little Buddhist sentinel, flying away, liberated, taking her own and my birthright back home to Tokyo, where she began and where she began me. In my room, the crystal bodhisattva stands with its enigmatic smile, unchanged and unmarked. It's cold and transparent, except for a light covering of dust. I don't look at it much. So that formed an idea for a collection of prose poems, which I called The Things My Mother Owned, and it described objects I'd inherited for, from her. And um, I started off with a simple description, which is a way of approaching difficult feelings um, before revealing something about her life through those objects and the sort of person she was. Um, and I wrote about a few more uh, objects until the manuscript for my creative writing PhD took over. Um, and I knew the novel was going to be about a young Anglo-Japanese woman dealing with the death of her mother, but I didn't expect to come up against the obstacle of my own grief. And uh, fairly early on, I found myself blocked. And it was only when Sue, my supervisor, suggested I use this collection of prose poems as a gateway to reinvigorating the manuscript um, that it worked and I was able to move on. So I wrote some of these objects, they're real objects that I own into the narrative. And so the things she owned was born. Um, so these objects in the book, in, the, in things she owned, are all but one, I think, are, are ones that I own or used to own. Uh, but again, I want to make it clear that the role they play in the book is absolutely fictional. Um, so I'm going to show a few of them to you now. Uh, I'm actually going to ask, first of all, uh, to Tracy, if you wouldn't mind just showing the image of the Korean cabinet, um, which is uh, exactly as it is in uh, uh, the first prose piece, the short prose piece describing an object. And I'm just going to quickly uh, read that little section for you. It's much shorter than the other bits I've read. Uh, an antique reproduction of high quality, 30 years old, made to look 200 years older. Crafted from dark Zelkova wood, its top curls gently upwards at each end like a temple roof. Its feet are carved curves. The cabinet stands waist high and its width is that of a child's hug. It has two cupboards, one above the other. They're sets of small double doors concealing larger spaces inside. The doors are fastened with ornate dark metal clasps, a ring to the right, two little catches to the left, over which the ring snaps tight. You can slide a bat-shaped brass padlock decorated with red and yellow tassels through holes in the catches. The rest of the cabinet is marked out in rectangular panels by thin bands of darker wood. Among them, if you look hard enough, you might find three that slide out to reveal secret drawers. Thank you, Tracy. Um, I wonder actually if um, anyone was able to uh, spot where the secret drawers were. So again, some, of, some people may have seen this item already, this object already. Um, it was actually in that photograph because I use, like Erica does, um, I use that Korean cabinet as my, my altar. Um, and this is a very, very tiny version of what's called a butsudang or a Buddha shelf. Um, and uh, inside it is an oihai made of red lacquer. And I love the gold inside. So this is my mother's uh, spirit tablet. And on the front is her Sanskrit uh, spirit name on the reverse. 
is the name she had in life and the date of her death, November 1995. Um, and I'm going to get Tracy just to show very quickly a picture of my family Butsudan, which is in the uh, home in uh, Tokyo. And you'll see that that version is considerably larger um, than the one I just showed you. Um, that almost stands the entire height of one wall in, in my grandmother's old apartment. Um, and the tradition, uh, which is peculiar actually to Japanese Buddhism, um, is a, a sort of ritual of paying daily respects at a Butsudang. Um, and uh, I d if, if anyone's interested in reading more about it, there is an article on the voice, in the Voices section of the SBS website um, where I've written about this whole tradition and ritual. Um, thank you, Tracy. That's great. Um, so paying respect sort of Buddhism combines sort of Confucian ideals of honoring ancestors alongside the Buddhist idea of uh, the spirits of those who've died striving towards enlightenment. And uh, each of the Oihai ancestral tablets represent seats in the Buddhism for the spirits of departed ancestors. And I keep to the tradition of opening up my tiny little Buddhism each morning to offer incense and water to my mother, my grandmother, my uncles, and all the ancestors without whom I, I just wouldn't be here. And I find it a really lovely meditative way of starting the day and of connecting to my heritage. Um, and those of you who've read the things she owned will know that Erica has one as well. It looks exactly like the one I've got, but uh, she just doesn't deal with it at all. And it's covered with a very thick layer of dust. I don't think that's too much of a plot spoiler. Um, so then another theme really in the book is, is war trauma. And uh, Michiko, my mother, grew up in Tokyo during the chaos and the horror of the Second World War. And Japanese civilians, although the Japanese Imperial Army committed terrible atrocities um, during this time, especially in Southeast Asia, um, Japanese civilians knew quite little of the extent of the army's war crimes and, and suffered a great deal, actually, as many people did all over the world during the war or any war. Um, starvation and bombings, uh, especially in the Japanese cities. And most of you will uh, know uh, very well about the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, in August 19. 45, but a very large segment of downtown Tokyo, um, while it escaped the terrible radioactive fallout in those other cities, it was raised, absolutely flattened um, and burned by napalm bombs that were dropped over the course of one night in March 1945. And there is a, a, a vivid segment. I think there's a, a segment at the beginning, which um, I hope brings this moment to life. Um, so there, once Japan surrenders, General MacArthur arrives in Tokyo and the American soldier that uh, Michiko meets on that day sets the course for the rest of her life. Uh, and again, can't say much more because I'll spoil the plot. Uh, so I'm going to move on to the other significant um, element um, or presence in the in the book, and that is the is Okinawa, which is a series of islands that lie about two thousand kilometers to the southwest of Tokyo. Um, I don't really have any Okinawan ancestry that I know of directly, although my maternal grandmother came from Kyushu, which is sort of the next stop up um, from from Okinawa. It's a southern island. Um, Okinawa interested me a very great deal because it's quite a liminal place. Um, it's, um, it sort of represents the in-between. It's politically a part of Japan, but not really Japanese. It was known as the Kingdom of Ryukyu, um, and it was annexed in 1609 by the feudal samurai lord Satsuma. And eventually it was subsumed by the Yamato Japanese government as a Japanese prefecture in 1879. And uh, although the indigenous people of Okinawa had their 
own language and customs and an extremely strong uh, culture, um, it, that for a significant time, there was quite a drive by the Japanese government at the time to suppress this culture. And those who went to find work in Yamata, Japan, when there was an economic depression on the islands, endured such racism that they were often forced to change their names so they wouldn't identify as, as Ryukyuan. And, um, I'm really glad to say this has diminished quite significantly these days, and there's a renewed interest in the rich Okinawan culture. Um, and since the islands are subtropical and absolutely beautiful, fringed with white sandy beaches, um, it's a popular holiday destination for people from the bigger islands further north. Uh, that is when they can travel. Um, and Okinawa has got a really tragic history, uh, quite aside from the succession of invasions it endured in the 17th and 19th centuries. Uh, the only land battle fought during the Second World War was on Okinawa, the, the big island in Okinawa. And it was an appalling episode in Okinawan history, with almost a third of the population killed during the so-called Typhoon of Steel, which was a months-long bombardment from warships, American warships, uh, moored just off the coast of Naha, the capital city. And uh, now... Um, it's still occupied by quite a large number of American military bases. It's sort of another sort of um, tricky issue because it really contributes to the economy and provides jobs for local people. But there is also quite a strong protest movement against them for various reasons. Um, and, and I've written about that in the, in the book as well. Um, so, this strong culture, despite all these tragedies and oppression, uh, survived. And a very powerful part of that culture uh, is the position held by women, which is a little bit different from position held by women in Yamato, Japan. Um, it's sort of fairly equal, so that when a woman marries into a, a family, uh, her husband's family, she retains her connection to her maternal family, which doesn't actually happen in Yamato. Once people get married there, then, you know, you become part of the other family and lose connection with your own. Um, and not only is this a sort of fairly matriarchal society in Okinawa, women have for centuries been given a, a real spiritual power that connects the community with, with the gods and spirits of nature. Uh, Ryukyuan Okinawan religion is sort of pantheistic and um, really uh, it's a sort of multi, there are many gods and spirits that are thought to reside in, in the elements of nature. And in the things she owned, uh, Michiko's mother was born in Okinawa uh, on the sacred Okinawan island of Kudakajima where all women are inducted in a secret ritual that was called the Izaiho. Um, into becoming shamanic priestesses known as Noro. And uh, I'm going to ask Tracy just to pop up a picture, quite an old photograph of a, a Noro. No relation of mine, but um, I think it just might give you a sort of a taste of the sort of something really quite sort of powerful about these women um, who had been um, tasked by the kings to pass on communications from the spirits uh, and the gods. Um, again, yet again, uh, saying much more about this is going to be a plot spoiler, so I'm going to have to leave you to read the book. But I'll just say that when I travelled to Okinawa to do my research, I met with Anoro, which was an extraordinary experience. Uh, she didn't look anything like the, the Noro in this photograph. Um, thanks very much, Tracy, for that. Um, she's pretty much like I described in the book when Erica meets with her. And walking through Okinawa, especially in the north, which is uh, much wilder than, than the southern part of the island, I felt a real visceral connection to the nature around me. And that informed a lot of the experiences that both Michiko and Erica have when they are in Okinawa. And, and it made me very interested in the way women connect with, with the natural world. Um, so there's a very strong, female theme running throughout uh, the book. 
Um, food is a very large part of it. A lot of people been, uh, say they're quite interested in, in the descriptions of food because, of course, Erika is a chef. Um, and food culture in Japan is very, very strong. Um, I think Japanese people, and that's myself included, have a very uh, kind of it's almost a relationship with food that's sort of like uh, a soul food. Um, and uh, so there's quite a bit of food preparation and uh, eating in, in the book. And what's crucial about it is it's the only way in which Erika and Michiko are able to connect is through the preparation and, and eating of food. Um, and I have one more object or two more objects actually I, I want to show you because these are described exactly as they are in the book. Again, they perform fictional roles in the book, but I have here the two rice bowls that my mother bought for the both of us um, back in, I think it would have been, 1973 or four so these are pretty old but uh, this was my mother's rice bowl and um, you know in Japan at home in domestic life people have their own rice bowls and they only eat from their own rice bowls um, so that doesn't really get used but it sits together with mine which is this one and I've been eating out of that since I was a really small child made by the same people so i thought that might be a fun thing to show you there is one more object actually um not all of the objects were owned by my mother one of the things that i bought um, when i went to okinawa because i loved it so much was a ring and you'll find it featured on the cover of my novel actually um alissa dinalo who uh you see it's that ring there the illustrator of this, I, I love my cover. I feel very lucky to have had Alyssa Dinalo as the illustrator. And when I wrote a new section into the book at the end of last year, suddenly this ring popped up into um, the narrative. And I asked if the ring that she initially had, which was a different ring that features in the novel, uh, to change it to this one, which is the Okinawan silver ring. It's called a fate binding ring, known in Japanese as emusubi, and it's thought to bind you to a place or to a person. But for me, it really bound me to Okinawa, and I don't think I've, I've done with those islands yet, and I suspect there's, a, well, I know there's an, another novel brewing um, that will be set in Okinawa in future. So uh, it will be some time before I'm able to travel back there, uh, but uh, I'm hoping it won't be too long. Um, so I think that's about it. I've probably come to my, the end of my allotted time. So I guess this is where Tracy asks a few, uh, passes on a few of the questions that you might've been asking. Yeah, sure, Catherine. So we have a few, you have actually answered some people's questions along the way. So they right. pop some in there and then said, oh gosh, she's answering at the moment. We do have some others here. So Rachel Mead. So Rachel, she's listening in. Uh, she says, water seems to play a significant role in both Erica and Michiko's lives. Could you tell us a little more about the meaning behind all of the water in the book? Yes, well, it's such a curious thing because when you read the book, you'll see just how watery it is. Uh, and it almost sounds a bit unbelievable when I say that that was never my intention. That just sort of happened. Um, and uh, Carol Lefebvre talks quite a lot about intuitive writing. And I kind of had to, when I sort of overcame various obstacles with the, the novel, I just had to practice a bit of, meditative reflections so I could get my analytical brain out of the way and found myself writing scene after scene that was watery. And when I was younger, and actually I'm still very interested in uh, Jungian philosophy and the idea of the collective unconscious and the idea of water as a carrier really of emotion and, and the sea a representation, I think that may also be possibly Freudian too, but um, the sea is often a symbol of 
the unconscious that what you see, you can't see what lies beneath the surface. So I was quite pleased that it sort of fit with what happens. Again, can't say more than that. Um, because, you know, uh, you'll see very early on that Erica is afraid of the water, um, obviously, as a result of the incident that I, I read uh, at the beginning of, of this talk. So, yeah, I, I, I am quite a watery person myself. I mean, I live by the sea. And uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, I was very surprised that that was so prevalent throughout the novel. Um, but I see it as a kind of the emerging of my subconscious mind. Thank you for that question, Rach. <laughs> Lynette Washington, who you probably recognise her name. That's the wonderful Lynette from Glimmer. I sure do. I sure do. And so I'm going to interrupt you here, Tracy, before you ask the question, because Lynette will have been talking about a wonderful collection of short stories she edited called Thrill Me. Um, on this same forum. So again, if people haven't seen it, that video is available on YouTube. There's some amazing suspense stories in there. Um, not only did she edit it, but it's actually one of the earlier publications from her own imprint, Glimmer Press. So I just had to interject and say that. So um, if we ask a question. say <laughs> when we had her on speaking about her book, um, The Thrill Me. She um, did mention that she was reading your book at the time and showed us the shimmery, glimmery cover and mm. said that you are going to be the next best thing. So that's wonderful. We look forward to seeing everything. Uh, so much love and uh, support in the writing community in Adelaide. It's absolutely wonderful. So Lynette asks, I'm interested in your process in regards to balancing research and memory. Research and memory. That's a really good question. I'd say that memory came first. Memory was the overriding thing. Um, so many of Michiko's wartime experiences were ones that my mother had. And although she's a different person from Michiko, um, a lot of those scenes were pretty much what my, my mother went through. She also uh, struggled with starvation. Um, and um, it was very clear that the impact of being a child growing up during second world war running home from school uh, with a little quilted bonnet uh, as she heard strafer bullets pew pewing in the dust behind her in the road as she ran um, and there were other things that um, manifested really as, as a form of trauma. So, and then of course, my own personal experiences of growing up in Japan, a lot of the things that I wrote were based on my own experience of my own memories, but um, really the bulk of the research came from when I started writing about Okinawa because I didn't really have enough knowledge about the place or about its culture until I started writing the book and, and, and did the research. Um, and there's another curious thing that happened because growing up in Japan, you do certain things and you carry out certain rituals without really ever having it explained to you or certainly it wasn't explained to me why those rituals happened or why certain things were the way they were. Because my education was actually at an international school. I didn't go to a Japanese school where I might have learned about some of these things. So it was sort of a reverse thing where I had very strong visceral memories of things, but had to look up why some of those things were done. So yeah, it was a bit of a curious process, but I'd say the balance of the weight was heavily um, weighted towards memory um, and Okinawa carries the bulk of the research, I'd say. Great. Laura says uh, the question she has is about sense of place. The Japanese settings are so vivid that so are the parts of the story set in London. Did writing such story, uh, such, sorry, such strong sense of place make you miss your overseas homes? Yes. Such a good question, Laura, and yes, I did. In a way, though, because the, when I, I'm sure most writers will agree that when you're writing a character in a certain place, you inhabit that body, um, which can be unpleasant if it's an unpleasant character. 
but I really to write those things down, I had to revisit those places. So, you know, they say that when you imagine something in your subconscious, in your mind, it, you know, your subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between reality and what you're thinking about and what your attention is focused on. So in lots of ways, it was um, a solace actually to write about my old London neighborhood um, and about my childhood home in, in Tokyo, uh, especially Tokyo, because so much has changed since the 70s when I was growing up there and the 80s. Um, it's a city that transforms all the time. So um, it was really a way of revisiting a place that no longer exists. So it sort of made me a little bit nostalgic, melancholic and sad, um, but also gave me an opportunity to re-inhabit those places. And it was a fun experience. Um, so uh, I, I always wonder when I might start on a novel set in Australia. Um, so far, even though I've lived here since 2008, Australia's only made an appearance in one short story. And I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that, but at the same time, I think um, I'm here. Um, there are still a lot of memories uh, and feelings of nostalgia about places where I used to, to live. Um, and I kind of feel I need to really start inhabiting the place in a different way before I start feeling entitled really to to write about Australia as a setting for a longer piece of prose so that's a bit of a digression but um, I thought it it would be good to tack that on there great we hope you include Australia in your next book uh, okay. Brian asks how much of the story is your life Catherine the time frame could be yours semi-biographical even though the start of the book says that your mum couldn't be more different from light to dark mm. yeah that's a, also a very good and slightly tricky question to navigate. Um, how can I describe it? It's as if I'm looking at a frame of myself and my life and sort of kind of fitting into it, but what's the content of it is, is really different. So my own life and my own life experiences were most definitely a springboard for the whole story. Um, obviously the grief that I went through over the loss of my mother was a very, very large one. And the, the, Michiko, uh, the grief that Erica feels um, was definitely true to life. Um, but everything that framed the rest of the narrative and all the detail, um, the father, I mean, my father is, is English, British, I have a feeling he might be listening in. I commanded him not to ask any embarrassing dad-like questions, but I, I have a feeling he's listening in. Um, and he's, he's very much been present in my life, unlike Erica's father. Um, and so I very deliberately wrote a different sort of scene uh, when it came to, to fathers in this story. So it's a really odd uh, kind of, again, liminal um, partly life, partly fiction book. Um, and maybe as my first novel, um, the sort of resemblance to my own life experiences seem far more significant maybe because it's what had to come out, I think. And in subsequent novels, I think that will start to recede. Um, it really was the novel I think that I had to write so that I could start writing about other things with other things. Mm. Right. I hope that answers the question. I may have dodged that slightly, yeah, but uh, awesome. Now um, that's all the questions we have from the audience. Now I did speak to you today about me asking this question because a little bit I was completely off the track of you being well. It led to you being an author, so you said in a roundabout way. But a little bit you told me that you once worked as a sneaker pimp, but <laughs> and I'm absolutely intrigued. So how does one get in? <laughs> work and what is that exactly oh gosh that was such a different life to the one i live now the term sneaker pimp was actually um, coined by the beastie boys um, and they called their procurer of uh of footwear uh, nike and adidas and i shouldn't really name check all those brands but uh they were their procurers of the latest um sneakers so hence sneaker pimp 
And I did have a job. I, I, when I left university, you know, I had wanted to go on into academia, but it was recession time in, in, in the UK. And after I did a, a master's, you know, delaying the, the, the terrible day I'd actually have to confront real life for as long as possible. But, you know, economy, you know, I had to find a way of making a living. So I thought this was rather misplaced belief that I thought that um, working in advertising would be creative. Um, and yes, I was, I was a suit, what they call a suit for a while, sort of dealing with various uh, accounts. And it was from there that I kind of got headhunted um, by someone I used to work with who was now working with Adidas, actually. I wasn't going to, I didn't want that written down so much because I'm sort of slightly squeamish about having previous employers sort of permanently existing online, although I do think there is a bio that, that says that. Uh, it was a fantastically fun job, I have to say, because I was in my 20s, early 20s and uh, early to mid 20s, and I was really enjoying the club culture that was uh, very prominent at that time. And my job was to find uh, DJs and bands and uh, musicians who would who I'd give uh, Adidas uh, gear to, usually the three stripe, three stripe original stuff, so that it was really a surreptitious form of product placement. And because I was told that I couldn't spend any money, I couldn't pay. Um, oh, sorry, they I I couldn't pay them to wear the stuff. Um, I had to sometimes cajole people with free tickets to ringside tickets at games, matches, football matches, and and things like that. Um, and I'll say the Gallagher's. So Oasis was one of the first bands that I, I gave a heap of stuff to, uh, which they really liked. And often when Liam and Noel had an argument, uh, Liam would come along to my office in London. Uh, Adidas is actually based in Stockport in Manchester, but I was working out of their advertising agency in London because that's where the music industry was, was uh, heavily based. And Liam would come along very politely, politely to my office for a cup of tea and a biscuit um, because he wanted to take some more Adidas gear and then kind of flaunted in front of Noel um, in, in a sort of revenge. So I met him and uh, Spice Girls too. So Mel C used to wear three stripe tracksuits until they changed managers and then they wanted money for sponsorship. And so uh, that was the end of, of that relationship. But it was a really fun time. Um, but it all ended really after my mother died and suddenly everything felt really quite meaningless. And uh, it was that that point that I, I, I started my very slow, long, twisted route to, to becoming an, an author. But it was fun while it lasted. And I met some really interesting people and had some very good times. So, yeah, a brief youthful uh, flair. Um, but that, that feels like a long time ago now. Okay, great. Well, if nobody else has got any more questions for Catherine, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, your book sounds absolutely fascinating and I can't wait to read it and find out about all of the things she owned. And um, I'm sure... The borrowers at our library can't wait to grab their coffee tree. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lovely opportunity. And thank you everyone for uh, joining in with the, the, or listening in, I suppose, because I can't see any of you. Um, but thank you very much. No problem. Yeah, it's an odd thing not seeing anybody, but um, everybody sure is out there. So um, everybody, please keep following the Marion Library's Facebook page the City of Marion website and check the inbox to be kept up to date on all of the upcoming Library for the Lens presentations and workshops. And again, like I mentioned earlier, Catherine has chosen the bookshops in Prince Booksellers in the City and Matilda Bookshop in Stirling as her preferred booksellers for this event. So both stores are selling Catherine's books, so please make sure you support local and contact one of these suppliers to grab your copy of the things she owned. And if you haven't already registered, next Thursday, Thursday evening, we welcome another Affirm Press author, Rachel Mead, as she talks about her new book, The Application of Pressure, that takes the reader to the front line of Australia's emergency services. So I hope you'll join us then. And thank you once again, Catherine. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Good night, everyone.
Good night.